Welcome to Saturday Evening Torah Class, an in-depth interdisciplinary study of the Hebrew Scriptures. Tonight's lesson is week number 16, the end of Deuteronomy chapter 12. Last week, we concluded with the section of Deuteronomy 12, in which the Lord has just made a very popular decision. The Israelites can now eat all the meat they want. Right? And it doesn't have to be limited to that portion that's left over from the sacrifices they offer at the tabernacle. And this would take effect once they entered the land of Canaan. Um, since this is going to be kind of a long lesson, we're not going to take the time to reread Deuteronomy chapter 12. We've read it already a couple times. But I want you to open your Bibles... All right, and get your finger there and have the pages open so you can find it, kind of uh, follow along. We're going to start out at, start the teaching tonight at verse 15. So have your Bibles open where you can follow along with me so you don't get too lost. Yeah, Deuteronomy uh, uh, chapter 12, about verse 15. Now beginning in verse 15 is where we get this easing of restrictions on the slaughtering and eating of animals. And out in the wilderness, the domestic animals, the sheep and the goats and the cattle and so on, had to be slaughtered only at the tabernacle as part of a uh, official sacrificial rite. However, at the same time, the Israelites were permitted to eat and slaughter wild game. And no part of it had to be involved in any kind of sacrificial ritual. Of course... The game that they chose had to adhere to the rules of ritual cleanliness for purposes of consumption. The only real restriction in eating meat now, once they entered Canaan, would be based on one's ability to raise an animal or afford to buy one from a, from a herder. Now, how much this actually added to the availability of meat for the average Israelite, it's hard to assess. In, in, in practice, meat was usually only eaten by the common Hebrew citizen on special occasions, such as the required sacrifices or the seven authorized biblical feasts, to, maybe to honor a special guest in your home or a wedding, something like that. Animals were more generally used for, the, for their sustainable products. For their labor. In other words, milk from cows and goats that could be used for butter and cheese and fresh milk. Oxen for pulling plows or, or wagons. Sheep for their wool to make clothing, bedding, floor rugs, tents. If one was fortunate enough to own an ox or a cow or a couple of sheep, the last thing you wanted to do was kill one and eat it. Okay. So generally, only the well-to-do or more fortunate who possessed larger herds and flocks, could even consider to have meat on a fairly regular basis. But one major restriction on the slaughter and consumption of meat remained unchanged. The blood in the animal could not be consumed. It had to be disposed of. And the prescribed way to dispose of it was to pour it out on the ground. Now let's talk about this Regulation as a whole. First, 
We have to understand that although every one of the biblical feasts involved feasting and eating meat as, as a corporate group activity, as of now, only the three so-called pilgrimage festivals required that the meat eaten during the festival during the festival had to come from a sacrificial slaughter at the central sanctuary. In other words, tabernacle when they were out in the wilderness, then later on a temple. Okay. So therefore, of those four other feast occasions, the celebrations were going to become local. Right? Whatever town or village one belonged to is where you'd have it. Right? And the slaughter of the meat would therefore be what the rabbis call shetat hulin. Shetat hulin. Alright? Secular slaughter. Slaughter that's not part of a ritual. Alright? However, even the secular slaughter process was to be done as humanely as possible upon the animal. With its throat cut at the main artery. So as unconsciousness and death occurred rather quickly. It might interest you to know that uh, Rabbi Baruch was trained in this. Alright, and he's actually was a licensed kosher inspector. Alright, uh, in Israel. So he's quite aware of, of all these very interesting laws. Um, and so much of the kosher laws isn't, isn't about what you can eat and what you can't. It's how the animal is raised, how it's treated, how it's killed, how it's looked after. And, 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 uh, treating animals humanely is very, very important. Now second, the required ritual state of purity of the person that wishes to consume meat with this new regulation no longer matters. In other words, it was only a person who was ritually clean that could ever offer a sacrifice. And it follows that only a person who was ritually clean then was permitted to eat the meat of an animal that had been offered for a sacrifice. It was a rather severe catch-22 situation if you think about it. In the end, it meant that only a person who was ritually clean could ever eat meat. Except if that meat was a permitted type of wild game, like quail or deer. Now with this new regulation that was going to take effect once they entered Canaan, since there was no longer a requirement that the commonly eaten meats like beef and mutton be part of a sacrifice, the ritual state of purity for the consumer of the meat didn't matter anymore. A person could be ritually impure from having sarat, all right, a skin disease. A woman could be impure from her monthly cycle, maybe having just given birth. All right? Or someone could have recently come into contact with a dead body, a circumstance which renders that person ritually unclean. And unlike before, now they can eat meat. The only meat an unclean person was prohibited from eating was that which had indeed been offered as a sacrifice on the brazen altar. Okay, So, so there's this difference going on now. Third is the critical matter of the blood. Now the law of not eating blood went all the way back to the time of Adam and Eve. Okay? It is even one of the so-called seven Noahide laws that rabbis and some Christian denominations say God enjoined upon all 
human beings. So when secular slaughter occurs, that is non-sacrificial butchering of an animal for food, the blood is still to be poured out onto the ground and not used for any purpose. This is as opposed to sacred slaughter for animal sacrifices, right? whereby some of the blood had to be kept and then it would be splashed onto the altar and the remainder then would be disposed of. Now this is, this is kind of interesting, I think. The reason that blood from secular slaughter, slaughter for food, is to be poured out on the ground and never consumed or used for any purpose is the biblical axiom that the life of any creature is in the blood. It is this axiom that when carried out to its logical conclusion is part and parcel of the reason that only blood can ever be an acceptable price of atonement for mankind's sins. Okay. Since life is in the blood, a common, everyday Israelite has no business, no divine authorization to use blood in any manner for anything. Okay. Since a priesthood had been established for religious ritual on behalf of the entire congregation of Israel, only members of a single tribe the Levites could use that blood for any purpose whatsoever. Okay. So his only choice is to return that life that's in the blood to the soil. In essence, returning it to God. Right? When he butchers an animal for food. Now at the tabernacle though, blood takes on a whole different characteristic. Because there it's used in the process of atonement for the sins of God's people. So the blood of the sacrificed animal, some of it, not all of it, is splashed onto the sides of the brazen altar. Now the reason for splashing the blood on the altar is basic to the understanding we must all eventually come to realize about how the Torah says holiness operates. And it's this. Holiness can be transmitted. Holiness is actually, to use a medical term, infectious. We examined the mysterious and profound nature of holiness in our study of Leviticus, but it's been a while. So it's certainly not going to be a waste of time to review it a little bit. And the first principle of holiness that forms the nucleus of all the attributes of holiness is that only God is inherently holy. And part of the reason this is so is because everything else but God is a created thing. Absolutely nothing else in existence, seen or unseen, is holy in and of itself. Rather, the Lord declares and bestows holiness upon his created things, seen and unseen, as he sees fit. And even then, 
It's done in accordance with his immutable laws and principles. The brazen altar of sacrifice was declared holy by the Lord. As were all other instruments and furnishings that were part of the tabernacle because they were going to be used in service to him and very near to him. Okay, Holiness is so powerful and important that it has to be carefully guarded because contact between the holy and the common can cause the holiness effect to be inadvertently transmitted to the common thing. Now a common thing or person doesn't mean an impure or unclean person or thing. It simply indicates that something has not been divinely endowed with holiness. It is not set apart. It is not sanctified for God, although if God chose to do so, that common person or thing could be declared holy. You following me so far? Therefore, what we find is that in the process of the Lord establishing holiness in this world, He has declared that people are to be divided into two general but distinct groups. Those who are holy and those who are common. The people he selected as set apart for himself, Israel, he has declared to be holy. Thus all other people on planet earth are common. Not ritually unclean, just not holy. So there are generally four spiritual states that a human being or any created thing can assume. Holy, common, clean, and unclean. Now, Orthodox Judaism, I think, has made a sad mistake by tending to reduce human beings to only three possible states. Holy, clean, and unclean leaving out the ritually neutral common category. Judaism implies that humans who are not Hebrews, meaning Gentiles, are inherently unclean rather than common. Big difference. Okay. Thus, since Hebrews correctly understand that impurity can be transmitted, the assumption is that a Gentile automatically brings that impurity upon any Hebrew who contacts him or perhaps is even merely present at a Gentile's home. Now let me be very clear that this belief varies greatly in degree all right, among today's Jewish people. I, I have seen, personally witnessed, some of the strictest Orthodox move to the other side of the street to avoid Gentiles, to avoid me. All right? And yet some of the most religious have shaken my hand, have eaten in my home. All right? So it varies. Now, something that is ritually unclean, though, indeed can transmit its uncleanness 
to something that's holy. That means that holy thing or person has become defiled. And now it has to be cleansed and purified in order to have that contamination of defilement removed from it. This is why God demands that His holiness especially, but all holy things must be carefully guarded. Okay, Because holiness must never be allowed to become defiled by coming into contact with the unclean. And the common must never be allowed to inherit holiness by merely coming into contact with the holy. The one outstanding exception to that rule is that if God ordains a common person or thing to contract holiness, then it is divinely authorized, and it should happen. Now, let me interject. What I'm telling you isn't speculation. It's directly from the Torah. This is directly from the Word of God. In fact, where today we have most of Christianity that would object to my teaching on this subject is because they either know nothing about it or their church leadership finds it very distasteful and so they've annulled it. Now please understand that this reality of holiness and commonness and impurity is real. It's more real actually than the walls that surround us and the roof over our head. The Torah principles of holiness and impurity aren't theory. They're not a fantasy. This is precisely how holiness operates. But the instruction manual about the details of holiness isn't found in the New Testament. So the church hardly knows anything about holiness or impurity at all. Now here's an important principle to remember. Animals that are sacrificed on the brazen altar have no inherent holiness. Animals that are not permitted for sacrifice or food, rabbits, pigs, have no inherent uncleanness. One animal is declared ritually clean and the other not, simply by God's choice. Okay, In some cases, for reasons that are mysterious and we don't fully understand them. Okay. Some scholars have postulated that meat from select animals is healthier than meat from other animals or that particular animal's function in nature is more edifying than another one. And so this is what God has in mind when he categorized clean and unclean animals. Over time, I'm telling you, every effort to categorize animals in these kind of human, rational, logical ways has come to nothing. Because we're going to find major exceptions or examples that just don't fit. Therefore, the purity status and the atoning quality of animal blood has nothing to do with any inherent physical characteristic, nor does some magical thing happen within that chosen sacrificial animal. Rather, the atoning quality of the blood occurs when holiness is transferred to that animal's blood by means of it coming into contact with the already holy brazen altar.
Okay? This is, this is important. So listen to me carefully. The only way that sacrificial animal's blood takes on an atoning quality is by coming into contact with the brazen altar. Because the holiness of the altar infects that blood then with its holiness. Go back and revisit Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and you're going to find that exact scenario. This is why priests must capture at least some of the blood of every sacrificed animal in a vessel because it has to be splashed on the sides of the altar. The altar being holy transmits its holiness to the animal blood by making that blood efficacious for atonement. This is the major reason that without a brazen altar, the Hebrew people when they were exiled from the lands had no means to atone. It did no good to slaughter an animal as a sacrifice and use some altar that they built wherever they now lived because that altar wasn't holy. So it couldn't infect that animal blood with its holiness. This is a major reason that when the Jews were up in Babylon, they turned to other means borne by their own thoughts to try to to find some way to atone for their sins. They're in a terrible spot. Conversely, animal blood that is but poured out onto the ground has no atoning quality. It's not been imbued with holiness because it hasn't come into contact with any holy thing. The brazen altar. Since there is no holy or atoning purpose at all for simply slaughtering an animal in order to have meat, which is now permissible, all the blood has to therefore be poured out into the ground because it's useless for the one single spiritual purpose that God has deemed for it. Atonement of sins. Okay. Now that you are biblical holiness experts, let me show you something that's even more interesting. We just established that the life is in the blood. I think that's pretty undisputed within Christianity. And therefore, since all life belongs to God, he's going to decide what's to be done with it. And one thing that the Lord says must never under any circumstances happen, not for an Israelite, not for a pagan, not for any human being, including a believer in Messiah Yeshua, is to ingest blood for food. Blood is special on a spiritual level. Blood is divinely set apart. Not only are we well aware that on a physical level, any living creature that's drained of too much blood dies. The life that's in the blood flows out of that creature. But God has chosen to assign blood a unique spiritual quality that can be used only as he deems it's to be used for the purpose of atonement. Israelites were not even permitted to eat or drink something that symbolically represented blood. Now pay attention to this. I've often heard Christians say 
that wine used in Jewish ritual represented blood. That's not true. Okay, that's a myth. All right, that erupted due to the common biblical phrase that was eventually absorbed into the Gentile world that referred to grape juice or grape wine as the blood of the grape. Okay, biblically speaking, wine symbolizes goodness and joy. That's what it symbolizes. An abundance of wine is symbolic of a lot of joy and, and prosperity. <laughs> Offering wine to a guest in one's home was represented as a spirit of welcome, shalom, goodwill, but wine did not represent blood. No observant Hebrew would ever contemplating uh, drinking wine if it was symbolic of something you were never supposed to ingest. Blood. Now some of you might kind of be seeing where I'm going with this. Some 1,300 years after Moses and the law of Mount Sinai, somebody came along who instructed his flock of disciples to drink wine as symbolic of his blood. And to do this as the greatest memorial remembrance of him. And his name is Yeshua. And it happened at Passover. And the church has made this ceremony into a separate sacrament called communion. Let's recall the actual instruction in the New Testament to drink wine as symbolic of Messiah's blood. As I read this to you. 1 Corinthians 11.25 In the same way, he, Jesus, took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Jesus instructed his disciples to symbolically drink blood. His blood. Why? Because, as has already been established, physical blood, physical life rather, is in physical blood. But eternal life, unending spiritual life, is in Messiah's blood. By drinking wine that represents His blood, we acknowledge that the atoning quality of His blood is the only provision that our Father has ever made that gives a man the same kind of eternal life that he has. Understand that this wine drunk in Messiah's name is entirely symbolic. Okay, Your communion cup does not magically turn into blood. This command of Christ to make wine symbolic of his blood and so to drink it is unique in the Bible. I will tell you that when I first started to contemplate this, I ran up a really big phone bill with Rabbi Baruch in Israel going over this. And we probably talked about this for two and a half hours. And when we parted, he said, you know something? You're right. This is a really hard one to figure out. For the first time in the history of mankind, ingesting something that even symbolized blood was being allowed and encouraged by God. And you and I 
can only imagine the startled and probably worried and skeptical, if not downright disgusted, 12 disciples sitting around that Pesach table as Jesus told them to do it. Everything these Jewish men had ever been taught, every cultural and religious principle they had known, told them not to do this. Can you also imagine how the local Jews who heard what these disciples of that carpenter's son had done at the Passover table must have thought when they learned about them drinking wine as symbolic of that man's blood. This was apostasy at an almost unimaginable level for them, I'm sure. Now, does this kind of help you to see why a religious Jew really has a problem with the Christian tradition of communion and the, symboli- the, the, the symbolic uh, uh, idea that we give to it? For them, it's practically a combination of cannibalism, idolatry, and a violation of the universal law against blood. It's a real problem. I tell you this, So you can be aware when speaking to a Jewish person about these sensitivities and where it came from. Okay. Now, sometime later, several years actually, after this mind-boggling, if not disgusting, instruction from Yeshua, Paul had thought long and hard about what the meaning of all this is. And his conclusion was not that Jesus had now given men permission to drink blood, all right, nor could man now symbolize wine as blood and drink it at various religious ceremonies. Rather, the only permissible time and purpose at which a man could drink something symbolic of blood was when it was a believer of Messiah drinking a tiny cup of wine in solemn and sere remembrance of his atoning act. If a man did this for any other reason, honoring any man for any purpose other than remembering Messiah Jesus and thus declaring our union with him and eternal life in him, then we're right back to square one whereby a person was breaking God's command never to drink blood. Paul expressed it this way in 1 Corinthians 11.27. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. A person drinking it in an unworthy manner, I think, is a non-believer. It would appear from passages, from later passages, that if a disciple of Yeshua has rebelled to such a degree as to be dangerously distant from God, then this person might fall into the category of the unworthy. If if we are not in union with Christ, we are not worthy. And we have no authority to take of this, partake of this enormous lone exception to this rule of symbolically 
drinking blood. We will be sinning on the highest possible level and be declared guilty by God for doing such a thing. But notice that this same God principle operates in Moses' day just as it does now. There is nothing inherently holy about wine. It is that the Lord declares it as symbolic of holiness and eternal life-giving when we drink it in honor of our Savior's sacrifice. There's nothing magical about wine when we drink it in honor of Yeshua. It's only meaningful for those who are already redeemed because God simply declares it so. Now let me peel this onion back one more layer. God prohibited Adam and Eve from eating of the fruit of the tree of life that grew in the Garden of Eden. You remember this, right? Why? Because if they did eat from that tree, they would obtain what? Eternal life. Okay? What would have been wrong with them obtaining eternal life? Right? Since it's apparent that God wants people to have eternal life with Him. In fact, He's gone to the greatest lengths to make eternal life with Him possible. The problem is, Adam and Eve weren't redeemed. Okay? God first set up the principle of redemption. Not with Moses, not with the priesthood, but with Adam and Eve. Eternal life is something that the Lord wants for mankind, but it will always be restricted to those who are redeemed according to the law, the Lord's definition and method of redemption. So just as Paul explained that the unworthy could not drink of the communion cup, the idea ties all the way back to the tree of life. Because Jesus is the spiritual tree of life. Messiah is the tree of life. Yeshua, our Messiah, is the means, the only means, to eternal life for humans. Therefore, no man is permitted to eat of this new tree of life Yeshua, or to ingest his blood, his body, as symbolized in the drinking of the Paschal wine, unless the man is first redeemed. Eating the fruit of the tree of life symbolized the same thing as drinking the wine that's symbolic of the covenant in Christ's blood. It's all tied together, all wrapped tightly together. Folks, when we accept Christ... We have now eaten the fruit from the tree of life that the father and mother of all humanity couldn't. Verses 20 through 25 of chapter 12 gives us some details about this secular slaughter of animals for food, most of which we've already covered. Verse 21, though, seems to add a caveat to the slaughtering and eating of animals for food. That this applies to those who live too far, says from the central sanctuary. 
And this instruction has been interpreted a number of ways by Hebrew scholars, but usually it's taken to mean that anywhere outside the temple or the tabernacle courtyard was too far. Basically, they say the meaning is that if one was outside the sacred precinct, then this new law concerning eating meat was applicable to them. The essence of Qumran who wrote the so-called temple scroll found among the Dead Sea Scrolls, defined too far as a three-day journey. That was logical. It was a very practical choice. Because it turns out it's just slightly more than a three-day's journey from Qumran to Jerusalem. So by such a ruling, they were excluding themselves from the requirement to journey to the temple and submit their animals to a priesthood that they considered corrupt and illegitimate. Which is why they were out in the desert in the first place. Other rabbis say that this really had more to do with the journeys to the tabernacle as required by the three pilgrimage feasts so that some Jews who were too far away out in the diaspora weren't obligated to have their Passover lamb slaughtered in the presence of the priests. Verse 25 states what is really always the object of God's laws and rituals. That it may go well with you. That is, despite what Christians have generally been taught for centuries, the key to the victorious Christian life, that things will go well with you, as a believer, is total obedience to the rules and ordinances the Lord has established. Oh, prayer is a part of it. But it's not the key. Going to church or synagogue is part of it. But it's not the key. Giving regularly in hopes of having God rewarding you with more wealth isn't the key. Obedience to God's commands is the key to well-being, to shalom that's divinely brought about. Okay, since the instructions we've just been given are the general rules about how you go about secular slaughter of animals for food, now we're going to be told about the general rules for sacred slaughter of animals for sacrificial purposes. And it's emphasized that those vow offerings and those free will offerings must still be taken to the central sanctuary, the tabernacle, can't be offered any other place. God's telling us that where the matter of eating meat has been relaxed out of sheer practicality, that when it comes to matters of holiness, no relaxation is possible. Here's where it becomes important to understand all the important differences among the various kinds of sacrifices. Vow and free will offerings, while connected to sacred ritual, were the result of the worshiper's own desires, his own choices. Okay, Vow and free will offerings were at the discretion of the person. Okay? Israelites weren't obligated to make vows or to give extra over and above the required tithes of 
first fruits and the fee sacrifices. Vow and free will offerings were purely voluntary and the law gave the bulk of the meat from those kinds of sacred sacrifices to the worshiper and to the priesthood to use as food. Therefore, lest anyone think that since these were voluntary offerings to the Lord that they did not have to take them to the tabernacle to sacrifice them there, it's being made clear that just because you can eat more meat... When it comes to a sacred offering, you still got to take it to the tabernacle. Now further, part of the reason that these voluntary offerings must occur outside, the voluntary ones, outside of the tabernacle, goes back to our understanding of blood and holiness. Without the blood of the sacred offering being splashed upon the altar, the blood can't be infected with holiness. Blood that's not made holy is good for one thing. Pour it on the ground. That's it. So the Lord doesn't want anyone to think that they can perform a, sac a sacred ritual like a vow or a free will sacrifice. Remember, because this is voluntary. On their own terms. Or do it in the way they prefer. At the place they prefer. For convenience. And think it has any spiritual value at all. Boy, there's a lot of lessons in this. Beginning in verse 29, we kind of come full circle. The Lord began this chapter with the admonition not to worship Him in the same places and same ways that the Canaanites worshipped their phony gods. And here the point of worshipping only at God's sanctuary, which is to be placed only where God instructs, is that to do otherwise is worshipping Him like the pagans worship their gods. And interesting instructions added to this in verse 30. It is that Hebrews are not to inquire, it says, about how other nations worship their gods. That is, they're not to follow their curiosity, their natural curiosity, and learn about the Baal cults or attend one of the Canaanite worship ceremonies, even if our purpose might not be to seriously consider accepting their beliefs. Boy, you know, that flies in the face of our modern mentality that thinks we should go find out all about other religions so we can talk about them intelligently. That it is our obligation to know about them so we don't accidentally demonize them or appear at all intolerant of a religion that seems to have pretty good values. Now, while I respect different views on the subject, just let me say a couple things about it. First, this is not the same thing as exploring different Christian denominations or even exploring Judaism because both are based on the worship of Yehovah and both are based on the foundation of the Holy Scriptures. And second, the concern is not about trying to keep God's people ignorant. Rather, it's that many false religions can be awfully enticing because they, appear, they appeal to these evil inclinations we have in us. And it says in verse 30 of many translations, beware of being lured into their ways. And we sh 
certainly should not do what these other belief systems do, nor should we add any element of their worship into the authorized methods that the Lord has shown us in his word. Now, the sense of being lured into their ways is well captured in the complete Jewish Bible, as it says, being trapped into following them. The idea is of being caught in a snare and then not being able to extricate yourself. One example that is as prevalent now as as it was then is marrying into a different faith. Today, more and more, we're seeing Western women marrying Muslim men. And indeed, they're finding themselves trapped. Often, the wife will be asked to go and meet the family in some Arab country. And the laws of that country makes the woman a virtual slave, where she isn't permitted to come back home to a non-Muslim nation of the husband's sides to stay. Or if the couple has children, the woman is given permission to leave, but the children have to stay with the father. Certainly the woman likely never envisioned such a thing when she dated this wonderful man. Nor even when she married him, because she didn't pay a whole lot of attention to his Islamic beliefs. But by ignoring God's laws about this, she was deceived, ensnared, and entrapped. The price for being released probably will be her children or her life. Such was the same case for the Israelites. It was not simply a matter of violating this law and thus things not going well for you. That is, losing out on God's blessings by mixing in worship of Jehovah with worship of some of these Canaanite gods and goddesses. It was that often as not, you could find your Hebrew identity lost. You could be ensnared and perhaps unwittingly find yourself assimilated into a pagan culture. This is anything but far-fetched. Israel barely set foot into Canaan before they started to do this by exploring the neighboring religions, their women marrying into these pagan tribes. Or most typically, adding a little bit of the local belief system into their worship of God in order to show some tolerance and some friendliness, some neighborliness. Now I'm sure we have husbands and wives in this class whose spouses don't necessarily belong to a pagan religion, but they're simply not worshipers of the God of Israel. Often this can create a lot of stress within the family. And the one who does believe can easily be be, be lured into a little bit more secular lifestyle because they feel they don't have much choice. There's going to be family peace. This chapter ends... By the Lord saying unequivocally that he finds these false worship practices detestable. And that many of these false religions involve even offering up their own children as human sacrifices to their gods. Let me briefly talk about the subject of child sacrifice because it comes up a lot in the scriptures. Child sacrifice was well known outside of Bible stories. Okay. It's written about even by the classical writers. 
Okay. Generally, a child would be offered to a god if that family wanted something of great value from that god, or if that god would protect them from some enormous calamity, or, or, or a defeat in battle, or maybe even from a, an epidemic. And, and there's a lot of archaeological evidence to prove the rather widespread practice of child sacrifice because hundreds of urns containing the thoroughly charred bones of very young children have been found in the areas where pagan altars have been found. Okay. Now, an informative relief of Egyptian origin was uncovered that, that tells the story of Egypt attacking Canaanite walled cities around 1200 B.C. And it shows the people inside these walls, the Canaanites, holding a religious ceremony, praying to the heavens, and then dropping the bodies of dead children over the walls. In other words, the children had already been sacrificially killed. So throwing them over the wall was part of indicating the purpose of those sacrifices, to protect them. Why children and not adults? Why not sacrifice some adults? Because the foundational belief of the pagans was that if they wanted something of great value or importance from the gods, they needed to offer what was most precious to them in order to get it. And most societies valued their children above all else. So we must not ever think that these religions that murdered their sons and daughters as an appeasement to their gods did it because, oh well, they had plenty of kids anyway. Or that they didn't love them or care about them. So what's one less child to their large family? That wasn't the attitude. Now as aberrant as this was to Jehovah, and as clear as he made its prohibition to Israel, and as serious as the Hebrews generally took this command, eh, they weren't entirely above engaging it in, in it themselves. I present to you in a much earlier lesson the sad story of Jephthah making a vow offer as a, that, that he would make as a burnt offering the first thing that came out of his house to greet him when he returned from a crucial battle. If the Lord would lead Jephthah to victory, well, Jephthah got his victory. And when he returned home, his only child, a daughter, ran out that door to greet him, and he followed through with his vow. Now, his intention was not child sacrifice. In fact, the girl was probably a teenager. The whole thing was a horrible surprise to him. In the Middle East, right up to this day in the more primitive religions, the farm animals might live inside the house right along with the people. I can remember several years back on a trip to Egypt. Becky and I were going down the rail between Cairo and Luxor. And we could look out the windows and see these houses with courtyards. Alright? And where the people lived, and there were as many animals as people inside those courtyards. Farm animals. Goats, sheep. It's amazing. 
in the Bible times up to and including Jesus' day, this was also the norm. People didn't think anything of it. Certainly, Jephthah must have expected something like that. A prized animal, perhaps, to have come bounding out of the house. But whatever the case, although he was really distraught about it, he still seemed to have gone ahead and murdered his daughter. Burned her up on an altar, doing it all in the name of the Lord. Despite his intention to honor a very rash vow and not sin by backing out, what he did was to commit human sacrifice. So warped was his logic that he determined he was doing a better thing because it would have pleased God not to sin. Now we know that even during Jesus' day, child sacrifice occurred in that deep ravine that uh, surrounded the southern and eastern corner of the holy city, the Valley of Hinnom. It was used as both a waste dump and a place where altars to Molech were erected. And their children were sacrificed, presumably, of course, not by Hebrews, but by Gentiles. And here's the point. Scholars have always recognized that the prohibition of child sacrifice actually wasn't the purpose of the final verse of chapter 12. Rather, it simply took perhaps the most extreme example of what can happen should Israel start to adopt the ways of their pagan neighbors to honor God as they honor their false gods. The idea is that for a Hebrew, but to sample or inquire about even the most mundane or seemingly harmless aspect of the Canaanites' pagan religion will, with some Hebrews, become irresistible and end up with them committing the worst possible atrocities. And they might even at times do it in Yehovah's name. How many people do we know that tried drugs just that, that one time or that second time and maybe you did it with them You could quit. They couldn't. They were trapped. They were ensnared. It was all over for them. So God says they should shun these religions, these pagan religions, with every fiber of their being, regardless of whether it insults, offends, angers, or merely makes relations with the Canaanites kind of uneasy. Stay away from it. Let me end today with this thought. By the church simply reducing everything the Lord expects of us to the word love, we have various denominations endorsing homosexuality, gay marriage, abortion, polygamy. At the same time, it wants to ban, for that same love, the execution of murderers, forgive sex crimes upon children, and declare that any God that's worshipped is really just Jesus anyway, so it's all right. Why? 
Because the supposed law of love effectively invalidates all of the Lord's other commands. I mean, we can't be against homosexuality because that's not loving. We can't stand in the way of two males getting married to one another because they love each other and of course God loves love. We can't execute a killer because instead we should love him. No no loving God would ever take a human life as retribution. And we can't stand with Israel and necessarily against its enemy, the Palestinians, because that's not even-handed. That's not loving. How did we get so far off track? How could believers think such weird thoughts? Just as with Jephthah, too much of, uh, of Christianity has mixed the ways of Greek philosophy and intellectualism and all kinds of various cultural traditions with the Lord's ways in hopes of getting along with the world. And as society and as the church grows increasingly accepting of these things, we all just become numb to them. And they become the new normal. So we declare to ourselves that these things must be good because they're so comfortable to us. They feel so good and so right. To do otherwise would have us crossways with many of our friends, some of our family, certainly at times with our own church or synagogue. After all, who wants to be labeled as belonging to a cult or as being a heretic or being labeled as a fundamentalist, intolerant, unintelligent hater? Well, this is the choice that God lays out to Israel. Obey my every command regardless of the social consequences. But this is so I can bless you. Or, go ahead, commit idolatry by adopting some of the ways of the world and thus perverting the true worship of the true God in order to blend in with your neighbors and have a form of peace with them. We'll get into chapter 13 next week.